Get ready to start your new morning ritual with our new sponsor, Mudwater. Coffee is one of America's favorite beverages, with more and more people starting their coffee habits every day with a cup of that flavorful anxiety juice. But let's be real. Have you ever heard anyone say, I'm working on getting more coffee into my life? Millions of people complain about the jitters that come from coffee consumption. Our morning coffee rituals can be habit-forming and, for some people, can make getting a good night's sleep almost impossible. And while nearly all of us like the smell, taste, and ritual of our morning coffee, why not explore eliminating the negative aspects of our morning brew? Well, what if your coffee replacement helped induce alertness, not dependency, improve mental capacity and function, improve physical stamina and performance, improve immunity and overall health. Oh, and by the way, it tastes good enough to drink every single day. Meet Mudwater. Mudwater is your fastest growing coffee alternative in the market, consisting of organic ingredients lauded by cultures both old and young for their health and performance benefits. With one-seventh the caffeine of coffee, Mud gives you the natural energy and focus you expect from coffee, but without the jitters and crash. With an organic blend of mushrooms and ingredients like cacao, marsala chai, turmeric, lion's mane, and more, Mud Water offers a beverage like no other. Whether you want to enjoy it hot, cold, as a latte, or however you take your coffee in the morning, Mud Water is the zero sugar, zero crash, zero jitter alternative, sure to leave you feeling recharged and refocused. Listen, I'm really excited to have Mud Water as a sponsor here on The Brian Nichols Show because I've been able to see the Mud Water difference for myself, and you can too, so click the link in the show notes to get some mud, support the show, and get your new morning ritual started right with Mud Water. And now, onto the show. We can become great at doing the the things that we do well, the things that are, we focus on. Like I'm, I think our audience is great at selling liberty. I think we have yeah. been amazing at doing that. Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. As a sales and marketing executive in the greater telecommunications cybersecurity industry, Brian works with C level executives to help them future proof their company's infrastructure for an uncertain future. And in each episode, Brian takes that experience and applies it to the liberty movement. You start to ask questions that piques interest and get him to feel like, okay, this guy's actually got something that maybe can help me out. And then in your asking of questions and trying to uncover the real problems, build that natural trust. I know I went in the monologue there, man. <laughs> Instead of focusing on simply winning arguments or being right, we're teaching the basic fundamentals of sales and their application in the world of politics, showing you how to ask better questions, tell better stories, and ultimately change people's minds. And now, your host, Brian Nichols. Sunday there, folks. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. A little bit of a different episode for you this week. We are doing a throwback episode. This is going back to February 2018. My conversation with Dean Clancer, where we start talking about policy being the prescription to the problems we see out there. Also looking at political parties as vessels and more. So that being said, a throwback episode here on today's episode of The Brian Nichols Show. So without further ado, onto the show, Dean Clancy here on The Brian Nichols Show. I'm doing great, Brian. Awesome. Dean, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time on this beautiful uh, Saturday morning from uh, down in Florida to join us. And uh, hopefully we'll have a nice fun-filled discussion here that'll be insightful. So actually, I'll, I'll kind of go through uh, the uh, the podcast here and, and who we are, um, not only for you, Dean, but for our new listeners who are listening today. So who are we at the Libertari- or the, the we are Li- uh, Libertarians Network and also the Brian Nichols Show? So yes, we are going to have a libertarian bias, but really, we're for anyone who is across the entire political spectrum. I have people who are listening who are diehard communists and socialists, all the way to those who are you know diehard anarchists, or anarchists and, and libertarians. Um, we, we don't really care who they are in terms of their political ideologies. 
The main goal is that we're trying to present uh, news and information in an objective manner to really help uh, three things, educate, enlighten, and inform. And that's why I wanted to have uh, you, Dean, join us today because you definitely have a lot of experience in terms of uh, all three of those in terms of educating, enlightening, and informing people. Not only through your, your pretty awesome uh, Twitter handle you have there because I've been following you for quite a while now and you have a lot of uh, great information, um, but also you have a, a wealth of, of experience not only in politics but in terms of uh, you know being an advisor so let's just kind of run through really briefly who you are Dean um, I know you you have been working f in government for I would say what 30 plus years um, not only in the House of Representatives um, but also you were a policy advisor for uh, the Bush White House um, with their Council for Bioethics um, you know former vice president of Freedom Works uh, and you are now currently a partner at Adams Ald LLC and I, I was checking out your website. I love the the tagline you have. There are no simple answers. I'm gonna say there are simple answers, just no easy ones. Um, so Dean, I mean, that, I think that that pretty much that sums up where we are right now in 2018. Um, so I mean, really quick, I just wanted to you know, shoot over to you and kind of give us your perspective of where we are as a country in 2018 with with Republicans, with Democrats, with liberals, conservatives, libertarians, socialists, like. Where are we? How do we go forward and try to, to salvage what we have as a nation to at least try to come together at some point? Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> it's real. Yeah, it's a real pleasure uh, to be on. And and uh, and uh, I really enjoyed that introduction. I could have listened all day. And um, uh, I, yeah, I think it was a little less than 30 years uh, in Washington, but it, it felt like 50. And um <laughs> Yeah, you know, White House, Congress, all that stuff, uh, you get a little bit jaded. And it's tough for an optimist like me because I, I just want to expand liberty and uh, make America better, happier, more prosperous. And um, it's very hard to get anything done in Washington. So it's frustrating, but I, I plug along uh, in my policy consultancy nowadays and um, – and social media, as, as you picked up on, and I follow you on Twitter as well, and enjoy that very much. And um, so you asked about where we are as a country. Boy, I think we're in a mess. Um, but there's always hope. Um, we're, we're a divided country. There's the news this week about 13 Russians being indicted for meddling uh, in American social media with the hope of you know, stirring us up against each other and uh, causing us to lose confidence in our democracy and so on. And, um, you know, uh, my feeling is that's kind of going to happen in a democracy. I think it certainly shows that the Russians are not our friends, but, um, you know, there's a lot of countries that aren't our friends. The question is, um, can we do things that uh, make sure that we are, in fact, a strong, you know, people and democracy, um, and also pursue peaceful uh, relations with everybody around the world. And um, in terms of libertarians and conservatives and liberals and socialists, I think that uh, I think that the conservative side of the spectrum is very divided and and frankly demoralized at the moment. Uh, you have a man in the White House, Donald Trump, who is by no means a libertarian not even a conservative except on some things, at least not, he's not a fiscal conservative. And that's, uh, that's someplace I spend a lot of my time is looking at uh, the fiscal questions, the massive national debt, and, uh, you know, the prospects for our economy 
as a result of federal spending and taxation and regulation. And the fact is, conservatives, you know, they just passed a budget in Congress that doesn't balance, doesn't even try to balance. Uh, our national debt will go from $20 trillion today to about $30 trillion in 10 years. And that's using the rosy scenario of the president's budget, which assumes 5% a year economic growth throughout that period. We've been at 1% growth or something, two, maybe 2% in the last seven years since the um, recession. How are we going to get to 5%? Well, not with the policies we're pursuing now. I mean, not even with the president's uh, wonderful tax cut. And I really do like the fact that he cut the corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%. He wanted to cut it further, and, and so would I. And, and, you know, they got what they could get done. Um, otherwise, that tax bill, although it had many good things in it, I wouldn't say it was revolutionary. And I don't think it's going to lead to 5% a year economic growth. So that's the conservative side of the spectrum. And then real quickly on the left, I... I, I can't make heads or tails of them. You know, they they think Trump is, I don't know, the devil incarnate, and they're, they're, Bernie Sanders is their hero, and they, they're committed to uh, what I call post-office medical care for everybody. You know, we can all be in the, the health care equivalent of the DMV. And, but they believe in it, and they love it, and they, you know, they have no solutions, but they're really angry. <laughs> so... Anyway, that's my perspective on the spectrum. Um, I'll let you play with that. What do you think? No, absolutely, and and I think um, that that is a much needed uh, you know commentary you just you gave there for both the people on the left and the right because we we've really gotten to this dichotomy where you have um, you know one camp on the right who they they can't be wrong in their minds, and then on on the left the exact uh, polar opposite in terms of they can't be wrong in their minds. Um, you know, on their views of how we solve the issues or what the actual problems are. And, uh, I mean, you just brought up a really great point there, Dean, with regards to the uh, the budget we have going forward. And uh, we had the likes of, you know, Rand Paul, Justin Amash, and Thomas Massey, and, and I'll, I'll dare say even the likes of Mike Lee, um, who really were standing right. up and saying, we, we can't cut over a trillion dollars in taxes and in revenue, uh, and then at the same point in time, increase spending by almost a trillion plus. Oh, oh. And, and it's 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 so heartbreaking as a uh, fiscal conservative to see uh, Republicans who have been standing for we'll we'll say about ten years or so since the Obama uh, administration began in this Tea Party wave who are saying that you know, they're they're fiscal conservatives and all we need is to have the the Congress and the White House and we'll be able to pass fiscally conservative budgets and here we are we're a year and a half into a Donald Trump presidency with both control of the House and the Senate, and we just passed one of the biggest spending increases uh, when you compare it to the tax decreases that we've had, the tax cuts, which don't get me wrong, I'm all for a tax cut, but to all right. of a sudden see these Republicans who are touting, you know, uh, we're trying to cut the deficits and we're trying to cut spending, completely do a 180 now that they're in control and they have to quote-unquote govern. So, I mean, <laughs> with that being said, what would you say to you know, the likes of those I guess I'll, I'll use a very soft air quote, Tea Party Republicans who were elected to be these these budget hawks, who were elected to be these fiscal conservatives, who have now completely done a 180 now that Donald Trump is the president and that now they have to supposedly govern. Yeah, that's a wonderful point because I, I thought to myself this week, wow, the Tea Party died this week officially. I mean, I think it had been mm -hmm. moribund for several years, but it really was put in the ground because this budget they just passed 
didn't even pretend. They just said, let's have a bipartisan deal to increase defense spending and increase welfare spending. Everybody gets, you know, it's it's a compromise as Washington sees it. <laughs> and the poor taxpayer is the forgotten person in the in the deal. I absolutely loved Rand Paul's um, mini filibuster. You know, he basically said the emperor's got no clothes and his fellow Republican senators were very angry with him for doing that. Mike Lee was a hero. Justin Amash and Thomas Massey are my two favorite House members. And, and, you know, because they actually just tell the truth. It's not like they're, you know, it's not like they're able to accomplish a lot because they are in a minority. But, boy, they just stand up and tell the truth. And that is so unusual that it's courage, you know. And Mm -hmm. um, but the Tea Party is defunct. But a lot of these guys who got elected in 2010 and 2012 and 2014, um, Tea Party was the fashion of the moment, so they put on the Tea Party uh, tricorn hat and grabbed a musket and posed. And then when, you know, things changed, well, then suddenly they were a Donald Trump Republican or whatever. And, you know, that's just politics. I think we should expect that. I think um, I think there's always hope. I think uh, Republicans, unfortunately, are only fiscal conservatives and libertarian sounding when the Democrats are in power. Then they mm-hmm. unite and they sound great, but when they're in power, they don't really do it. So, and we all know this. I mean, this has been a long, long-standing complaint, and it's you know, it's a question of well, what what the heck do you do about it? And I, for me, it's a question of trying to get them to do the right thing wherever you can, when you can. So, applaud them for cutting corporate tax rates and simplifying taxes as they did. That's a good thing. They, they deserve applause for that. Was it revolutionary, as I said? No, but it's a step in the right direction. But also oppose them when they do the wrong thing, which is what they've done on, on spending of late. And I think that if the Democrats take control of either chamber of Congress in this year's midterm elections, which I think is quite possible, I'm, I'm not going to predict it because uh, I've learned not to predict on elections. <laughs> um I think if it happens, you're going to see Republicans start to talk again in the right ways. Question is, will we get changes among the leadership of the Republican Party that move in the direction of a, a Justin Amash or a Thomas Massey? I don't know. We'll see. I'll, one more thing on the Tea Party. Mm-hmm. I was at FreedomWorks, uh, as you pointed out, for several years. And, you know, FreedomWorks is a Tea Party organization. And I actually had the job of vetting political candidates uh, who wanted our endorsement or whom we wanted to uh, endorse or were considering. And I did discover that, yeah, a lot of these guys are just, I'll call them regular Republicans or Reagan Republicans or just people who want to be in Congress. And they would come in and they would try to talk the lingo that they thought we wanted to hear. But, you know, we could we could tell because we would ask Mm -hmm. them questions about yeah, so, uh, you know, what do you think about uh, monetary policy? You know, what would you do with Social Security? Um, what do you think about uh, defense spending? Uh, do we have too many overseas bases, too few or just the right amount? What do you think about Edward Snowden? You know, and when they would when they would say, oh, Snowden's a traitor, he should be shot. Then, you know, I knew, okay, we're not on the same wavelength. You might not think Snowden's a complete hero, but you have to, in my opinion, at least be grateful that he called out the government on violating the Fourth Amendment rights of American citizens. Amen. 
So anyway, that's that's my answer to your question about the, the Tea Party. We're we're in a an awkward phase. There's always hope for the future. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens in November. Um, I think Trump has kind of pulled himself out of the ditch somewhat with his tax cut bill and um, good economic news, you know, mostly. It's not 5% growth, and I don't think it's going to get there with these policies. But he's got some hope. And the question is, what do we uh, who are liberty-minded, what do we want to do to try to shape whatever outcome there is? And I don't know. Maybe I'll, I'll ask you that question. What do you think we should do? Well, I mean, uh, this this is actually I'm, this is kind of a great segue, Dean, into a question I I wanted to actually I guess shoot back to you. And it's I'll, I'll preface this question with um, a comment that uh, it's actually a tweet that Eric Erickson had made. Um, Eric Erickson, formerly of uh, Red State, I think he's at the Resurgent now, um, where he basically pointed out that in the past fifty years, the most fiscal sanity that we've we've seen. As a nation was during the 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 last portion of the Bill Clinton administration, where you had uh, Bill Clinton, a Democrat, as the the executive, and you had a Republican-controlled House and uh, and Senate, where we we had Republicans who were actually have to act on on fiscal responsibility and fiscal conservatism, who were controlling the purse, and it was forcing the executive, if you wanted to actually get a budget passed, to uh, rein in some of his his more liberal uh, fiscal policies. So. Is it yeah. is it rough yeah. is, is it wrong to say that it might be a more fiscal um, I guess a fiscal win for fiscal conservatives to have a, a liberal or democratic president with a United States Senate and U.S. Congress controlled by conservatives who actually control the purse? Do you think that that's a reasonable expectation or a reasonable uh, I guess political goal or is it? Because, I mean, we, we've watched over the past uh, year and a half now with a, a control of the presidency and of the Senate and Congress by Republicans that that hasn't yielded that. So is is it wrong to maybe hypothesize that having yeah. a liberal president being uh, in check by a conservative, fiscal conservative Congress might be a, a better alternative? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, we always come down to, well, do we want this person or that person in the White House? And usually we'll say, oh, that person's a big liberal we don't want that person. I mean, we who we who believe in you know freedom and limited government. But but you're right. As a functional matter, divided government does seem to work better than unified government. And I actually have a pet theory about that. I had actually not thought about this in years because you know uh, we've had a united government uh, from time to time, and it's actually been problematic. But the goal always seems to be well, you know, if we could just get Republicans in everywhere, boy, then then we'd go to town, we'd really clean things up. And it just hasn't worked out that way. But you're right. Uh, when Gingrich and company were in the House, I was a Republican leadership staffer at that time. So I know this stuff from personal experience. I was in a lot of those small rooms with Gingrich and uh, John Boehner and Dick Army. And the, the those they were the rebels of that period, by the way, uh, mm-hmm. not the establishment. And and sure enough, uh, there were deals done, and some of the deals were pretty darn good. They did a balanced budget act, which happened to come right at the same time as the dot-com bubble was flooding the Treasury with the revenue. So we got a temporary um, on-budget surplus uh, for four years, and um, we got a welfare reform bill that actually got rid of a New Deal entitlement that was really – dragging a lot of people into a permanent life in the underclass, millions of people. 
we block granted that program and two thirds of the of the roles went away. It became a, a program for the poorest of the poor. And it, it hasn't cost us a penny more over the subsequent 20 years. It's still $16 billion a year, which is exactly what it was in 1996 when Clinton signed the welfare reform bill. So that tells you something about block granting is it can save a lot of taxpayer money. But anyway, your point was divided government. And the answer is yes. And But I don't want a Republican president and a Democratic Congress because then I think you get what you had with Richard Nixon in the 70s mm-hmm. where you got really liberal legislation through. And I guess you could argue that he, he made it, you know, he, he softened the, the blunt edges. But I don't know. I mean, Nixon was not ideological. And so we got a lot of the left made a lot of gains then. And I'm sure they will if the Democrats run the Congress against Trump because Trump is not ideological either. And uh, yeah, so but, you know, what what do people who want freedom do under these various changing situations? I think they have to keep speaking truth to power like Rand Paul uh, and others are doing. I think that, you know, the, the, the laws of mathematics don't change. So we can keep hammering on the fiscal conservative thing. And eventually there's going to be a stock market collapse and a, a loss of confidence in the dollar on our current trajectory. This this crash is inevitable. It's just a question of when. We don't know when, but it's going to happen on our current path. We have to keep warning people about that. Um, if the Democrats get in and they go to town on spending, then I do think that the public might might start to be more interested in, in, um, in fiscal concerns again. But, you know, we live in a time that is in some ways very dishonest. You look at Trump's budget, 5% a year growth. I'm sorry, that's not going to happen. Um, CBO, the Congressional Budget Estimators, you know, on Obamacare, they were way off on their projections, but they refused to change them as new information came in. Why? Because they were ideologically committed to preserving Obamacare. I mean, that's the only interpretation I can put on their behavior. It was dishonest, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Either that or amazingly incompetent. And so when you have uh, lots of dishonesty uh, uh, on both sides of the political aisle, I guess the I guess what I'm getting to here is, yeah, the most important thing to do is keep speaking the truth. All right. So um, that actually will lead a very good uh, segue into my next uh, I guess my next question, but next uh, bullet point that I want to cover here as well. So. Um, this network, the We Are Libertarians Network, as you can, I, I guess, assume by the name, has a lot of libertarian listeners. Uh, so with that being said, a lot of libertarians um, that listen to this show are, are very principled, very ideological, and, and I believe they're in the right uh, ideological frame of mind. The problem is, is that we have individuals in the libertarian uh, movement and more specifically within the greater libertarian national party um, who they haven't had success in terms of bringing libertarianism mainstream. Uh, and, and I guess the closest we've really had in terms of having a libertarian moment in uh, the United States was last election, um, where Gary Johnson and Bill Weld uh, received the highest amount of, of votes than any libertarian uh, presidential candidate in, in, ever. Um, and I'd say before that, maybe Ron Paul uh, back in 2012 running uh, for the Republican nomination was the uh, the closest to having a, a larger libertarian moment. 
So right now in, in 2018, uh, we have a lot of libertarian candidates who are still trying to run, which I still think is a great uh, venture. I think libertarianism is, is probably the... There's a study that came out more recently that showed that a majority of Americans would self-identify as libertarians without having any titles placed on those views. But as soon as they had their views identified as being libertarian, they, they decided to identify either as Republican, uh, Democrat, or independent slash moderate. So I look at these libertarian uh, candidates that are running under the libertarian uh, party, and I feel uh, hesitant in thinking that they have a chance and bring these libertarian goals to a state and a national stage. Now, I know you you most recently uh, endorsed uh, Austin Peterson, who's running for United States Senate over in Missouri against Claire McCaskill. Right. Um, and Austin, who, you know, he came to fame on a national stage when he ran uh, for the libertarian uh, nomination to be the, their presidential candidate back in 2016. Uh, he's right. changed his uh, identification to a Republican. So do you right. think that it is more feasible for libertarians to, I don't want to say abandon the libertarian party, but to actually get libertarianism into government and to actually have a, a voice in policymaking, would it make more sense for them to either register as a Republican, like Austin has, has uh, decided to do, or, you know, register as a Democrat with, if they are more libertarian with regards to their social issues, do you think that's a more uh, feasible approach to how to bring libertarianism not only to a national stage that's a relevant uh, stage, uh, but also to actually affect change going forward? Yes. <laughs> the, the short answer is yes. <laughs> you know, uh, you can only govern if you get elected. You can only get elected in our system as it currently exists if you're one of those two major parties. Those two major parties are just shells. They're vehicles for getting elected. And uh, if you want your ideas to dominate and your kind of candidates to win, you got to take over one of those parties and that party needs to win. You know, it's no accident that Ron Paul and Rand Paul are both Republicans when they're in office. Uh, it's because that's the only way they get into office. And if they weren't in office, they wouldn't have the platform to speak the truth that I was talking about. Amen. And, <laughs> right. So. So, yes, Austin Peterson, whom, by the way, I worked with at FreedomWorks, um, mm -hmm. he, uh, he ran as a libertarian. And, by the way, I, I didn't follow that race too closely because, you know, I figured the, whoever is nominated by the libertarian is not going to win. But uh, I did think that I liked Peterson the best among the candidates. Um, I thought it was an odd convention with a naked man running around on the stage. <laughs> Many over here in the libertarian camp would agree with you as well. Yeah, and I can see why people, you know, I myself shy away from the label libertarian in most contexts. I, I call myself a decentralist. And I do that because uh, the problem with labels is is they come to be uh, outworn or taken over by uh, meanings that were not intended originally. So conservative, liberal, and even libertarian have become terms that it's hard necessarily to know what you mean by them. So as I say, I, I just say decentralist. Because I figure if you decentralize, break up monopolies, both public and private, uh, you get a lot more freedom. And um, but uh, I think Austin Peterson is is doing the sensible thing. He's trying to, in effect, take over the Republican Party of Missouri with respect to that Senate seat. And um, I hope he wins. And then he'll be another voice in the U.S. Senate. 
And the Senate is great because they got so much power. Senators can hold up the works. In fact, I mm-hmm. my criticism of, of Rand Paul and of others uh, like uh, Mike Lee and Ted Cruz is they don't hold up the works enough. They're, you know, there's a, I don't know, a desire when you get into power to be a nice guy and be liked. And, and even the, the good guys have this problem. You know, I think they ought to shut the place down more often. I don't mean government shutdowns, although I'm, I'm not opposed to those. But mm-hmm. just shutting down the Senate and saying, you know, Damn it. This is a lie what we're doing here. I'm not going to be party to it. And I'm going to use every power I can to stop it. We need more of that. Agreed. And uh, I mean, I, I'm fully in the camp with you there, Dean. And I, the reason I bring this up is because um, I'm not sure if you've been paying attention too much to uh, the Libertarian Party. Uh, I guess the, the happenings as of late with regards to um, you know, the the ouster that was being uh, pushed to get their uh, vice chair removed for his um, derogatory statements with regards to uh, veterans and teachers and uh, seemingly his, his, I guess, tacit endorsement of uh, pedophilia with regards to age of consent laws. <laughs> and, and I mean, as a, a guy here who I identify more in the libertarian uh, philosophy. I look at the Libertarian Party as a, a complete, I mean, crap show, because when, at the end of the day, we need to get these Libertarians elected. And I, I want, I would love to see, I mean, in my ideal world, I would love to see um, the, the Libertarian Party replace either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. That's that's an ideal world for me. The problem is, is that in the current state of affairs, as you mentioned, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are the best vessels to to even attempt to win an election. Um, right. And to see the state of affairs within the Libertarian Party as it stands now, I am very, very hesitant and not very optimistic at all. Um, and I am much in the camp as you are with regards to, you know, having Republicans get elected uh, or sorry, rather Libertarians get elected as Republicans like Justin Amash, Thomas Massey, Rand Paul, Ron Paul, etc. to actually then be the voice to bring not only some some actual power to libertarianism where they can actually affect change, but at the very least to be a voice of libertarianism on a larger stage that has some credibility. And I mean, you you made a, a really good point there with regards to, to Ron Paul and Rand Paul. They are easily two of the most identifiable voices within the libertarian uh, movement. And they're, right. they were Republicans. <laughs> and they brought a lot of libertarians or Republican libertarians into the libertarian movement and, and also into the actual greater libertarian national party. So um, I agree with you 100% with that perspective. And I think that's a perspective that a lot of the people in this audience should hear. Um, and right. Glenn Beck, actually, he just had a an article that was uh, was written with regards to uh, the actual happenings within the libertarian, uh, the libertarian national party. And uh, he had a really great line where it's like, if we want libertarianism to to get out of this um, you know third party status and to get out of the quote unquote mental masturbation which I thought was a, a fantastic line because that's literally what libertarians seem to do they sit in these Facebook groups and they they have you know the the I'm more libertarian than you argument and it's yeah. like well that that solves nothing that okay you won your Facebook argument but now we have you know the likes of Justin Amash who's actually trying to promote libertarian ideals as a Republican, he's doing more as a Republican than you are as a Libertarian in your Facebook group. But um, without going too often to the weeds on that, I did want to um, to take well, a step. Before, oh, before, yeah, before you leave that, Brian, yep. which is great points, I just want to make one point. I don't think the Libertarian Party should go away. I think it serves a real purpose. I do think it should, you know, try to not endorse pedophilia or uh, <laughs> oh, or have, na- have naked people running around on stage. I mean, I do I do think in politics that you know how you present yourself uh, is important. But um, 
you know, there are some races where having a libertarian candidate on the ballot is very helpful in trying to nudge the Republican candidate in a more libertarian direction. If he thinks that it's going to be a close race and he wants the votes of those people who would ordinarily just say, oh, I'm going to pull the libertarian lever, then he's going to try to throw some crumbs their way or, or better than that, he might actually move in their direction substantively in important ways. And so I think the Libertarian Party does serve a purpose. I do agree with you that there has long been a you know, a, a, a somewhat clownish aspect, uh, which I'm not sure how one solves when the whole point of libertarianism is, you know, letting people speak their minds and think freely. And, and in politics, there's always this pressure to try to get people to shut their traps, you know, and, and you know, I, it's, I think it's an unsolvable problem. But I do think if the Libertarian Party cleans up its act to the best of its ability, it can continue to do well. As you pointed out, in 2016, they did pretty darn well. And um, and that serves a purpose. It helps uh, drive the debate. But I do also think, as we've been saying, that ultimately you got to get a liber- – libertarians have to, to run as Republicans and get elected. Agreed. And you, you brought up a, a nice segue point there in terms of unsolvable problems. Now, I know you you have your own belief system and your own perspectives as it pertains to um, gun control rights and, and gun rights. And with the shooting that took place there on Wednesday in Parkland, Florida, there's been a lot of misinformation uh, that's been spread around, spread around not only by um, you know activists within the the gun reform now movement, but also uh, within greater media circles. For instance, um, there was a initial report that the shooter um, from the Parkland, Florida shooting was uh, a part of a a white nationalist group and was trained by white nationalists. Um, reports came out from all the sources. It's actually from uh, now this, which is a very liberal leaning um, news organization, uh, they actually debunked uh, the mainstream media promotion of this notion that the guy was from this white nationalist group saying is actually a 4chan uh, trolling. And they were they were saying, we're going to make these these uh, national mainstream media outlets think that this this guy was a white nationalist. And then they were bragging afterwards saying, see how easy it is to, to manipulate the media. And I think right now, after this shooting, we have a lot of misinformation. We have a lot of um, sensationalized viewpoints in terms of how to, uh, I don't want to say fix, but how to... Uh, to at least address these issues. And I went through a very uh, in-depth inter- uh, interview last week. I guess it was on Thursday. It feels like it was last week um, with one of my, my friends who was a you know a very diehard liberal in terms of how he would fix, air quote, fix the gun control issue. Um, so I want to, to get your perspective, Dean, in terms of, I guess, where we are as a country with regards to uh, you know mental health, gun issues. How do we... Uh, solve this going forward? Is there a way to solve it? Um, so based on your experience, not only, uh, you know, within your, your Washington uh, experience, but also just your experience in, in politics, how do we address this solution going forward? Wow. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, these, these shootings really um, give the gun controllers and the socialists you know, they they seize on these. You know, Barack Obama pops up every time and says, "Well, we just need common sense gun safety laws." And of course, that's a euphemism. What he wants is to confiscate everybody's guns. He can't say that because it's it's not politically popular to say it. But that's what he's thinking, and that's what 
uh, a lot of these people who are very angry. And whenever there's a shooting, it's it's natural to become angry. I become angry. But they immediately rush to how do we get rid of everybody's guns? Now, they, 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 they just talk about, well, we need some gun reforms or we need gun control. But they don't actually want to solve the problem because when you start saying, well, you know what? 99% of us who have guns never shoot anybody with them. And we have a natural right to defend ourselves. And we also, by the way, have a constitutional right enshrined in the Second Amendment to have guns for our defense. Mm -hmm. And that is, in fact, an essential pillar of liberty. That is, say, to limit the government, you got to be able to shoot back occasionally if necessary. <laughs> yep. And so the, the, they want to define the problem as the gun. And I think we have to define the problem as the shooter. And a lot of these shooters are crazy people. And some of them are terrorists, jihadists or what have you. Um, the whole question should just be, okay, how do we keep that person from shooting a gun? And we've got more gun control laws than you can shake a stick at. In every state, every jurisdiction, we don't have a lack of laws or rules. Um, the question is, is there some flaw in the existing system that lets a crazy person um, have an AR-15 and a bunch of other guns and ammo and magazines and go shoot people? And I'm not sure that there is an answer. Um, the left says, well, gosh, these other countries don't have all those mass shootings, and, and America does. And I haven't looked into it closely enough to, to, to probe that. I always question their, their assertions of, of fact on these things. Maybe you, you know, have better information than I do. But I think the point is we have to narrow this problem down to the person pulling the trigger. We have to defend our rights. Um, the public does, I think, want to see the shootings not happen, and rightfully so. Uh, so we cannot, ne we, we, we must never seem like we, well, we just don't care. You know, that it's, for us, it's just an abstract right uh, thing. You know, there's human beings involved. They need to be protected. One thing I would do as a practical matter, I would let teachers carry guns. I would let them mm -hmm. shoot back. And if a bunch of them had had guns in Florida, I think this guy would have been, you know, shot down before he had killed uh, so many people. Mm -hmm. And uh, that means you got to repeal the federal uh, gun-free schools act. By the way, I, I like to divide our country into two areas: uh, gun-free schools zones and school-free gun zones. Just kidding. <laughs> so, I, we we need more gun zones. We need more people actually armed, uh, not fewer. Agreed. My I agree, and actually, that's um we. In my last episode, we, we kind of uh, alluded to this where um, there was a, a report that came out that showed that 98%, it's like 98.6% of all uh, shootings take place when they're in public shootings in a gun-free zone. Um, and I think that touches exactly to the point you're making there, Dean, with regards to we need um, you know the, the ability for people to to shoot back and i think you know the the, the notion that well bad people are going to do bad things that's a, it's a realistic notion if they're going to break a law and kill somebody then they're going to break a law to obtain weapons um and i i i really i wish i had brought this up in my last episode with my uh my very liberal friend um but i forgot about this article back from january 24th um from usa today where it said um a, a young person in the united states is nearly 11 times as likely to die in a swimming pool 
than in a school shooting. I really think that, and in, I I, po- I reposted this on Twitter and I got lambasted by the left on Twitter saying, well, you know, uh, you're just, you know, this statistic doesn't really help the people who died. And I say, I agree, but we need to have perspective when you have this major push after some tragic event to enact new forms of legislation that are going to violate American rights. So let's, let's look at this objectively and truly try to think, okay, how can we quote unquote fix this? And I don't think that, uh, like, as you mentioned, taking more guns away from law abiding citizens will, will solve that. Now, with that being said, one of the biggest pushes that I've seen uh, as of late to try and get some new talking point onto the table from the left is that, well, an AR-15 is a military-grade weapon, and you know, just the average citizen shouldn't have access to a military-grade weapon. So to that person, what would you say to them, Dean? I would say that's, that's silliness. Um, what does that mean, military-grade? Does that mean it's a machine gun? Well, an AR-15 is not a machine gun. Uh, An an AR-15 is an object of hatred for the left simply because of its appearance. Mm -hmm. It appears, you know, it's like in the movies, you know, it looks tough. But it's a gun, and it's in principle no different from any other gun that you might see. And um, the country, by the way, has a consensus against machine guns in private hands. There, I mean, there are people who own them legally, but because of the tax they imposed back in the 1930s and various laws and restrictions, it's kind of hard to to own a machine gun and it's you know it's socially frowned upon and um, I'm not sure what the exact laws should be on that but I certainly don't think we should ban guns based on their appearance and uh, by the way I do think maybe we need swimming pool control uh, based on your your <laughs> statistic you know um, that seems like a much more urgent uh, public health issue. But I don't know. Uh, you you tell me, Brian. I mean, what what do you say to the AR-15 grabbers? I, I mean, I think it's a, it's honestly, and I again, I'm going back to my old podcast from uh, Thursday. I honestly think that a great push there on the left with regards to you know this this notion now and this new narrative of military grade weapons not being in the hands of of your average citizen. It honestly comes down to an ignorance with regards to. Um, guns. And I, I say ignorance not right. in a, a, you know, mean or derogatory sense. I mean it in truly the left does not understand about the basic functionality of guns. They look at, you know, uh, uh, AR-15 or they look at um, a, a I mean, you name the the weapon. They look at a gun as a scary object that should never be in the hands of someone because it can kill someone. And they look at the the big black gun with you know the 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 pistol grip that you can grab onto, and they think that this is some scary weapon that only uh, police or or military should be having access to. But they don't understand when they hear the word semi-automatic. That means that. It's not you pull the trigger and 700 bullets spray out in a minute. It means you pull the trigger once and one bullet comes out. They see the word automatic and they all, they instantly think it's it's some yeah. you know, devastation yeah, weapon. That, that's a classic example of unfortunate labeling, and mm-hmm. maybe we need we we may need a new term besides semi-automatic um, because it does sound. It sounds like automatic. Yep, exactly. And one thing that I and this is a good segue into my next uh, point here is that. I hear a lot of people on the left, as soon as these tragedies happen, their their immediate reaction is to say, we need to do something. We're, if we don't do something, we're all complicit in, in this happening again in the future. Right. And I always right. just say, okay, 
what what should we do and what policy would would prevent this from happening in the future now to that I always hear the the response, well, we should have a gun ban on AR-15s, or we should have a gun confiscation from from people, or we should have mental health checks for people who obtain these weapons. But then when we look at the fact checks, it turns out in all these various uh, examples that either A, um, the person illegally obtained the weapon, and they should have had, based on the laws that are already in the books, or B... They were flagged as being a potential threat, and the FBI or the various government agency dropped the ball, as that turns out to be the case here in Parkland. And if I look here on the right, I actually see some people trying to, quote-unquote, do something. So there's a a new um, House or HR bill here that was proposed by uh, easily one of the best libertarian uh, congressmen we have, Thomas Massey. Um, which is it's HR 34, uh, which basically it's um, the Safe Students Act. And the entire point of the bill is to repeal the Gun-Free School Zones Act of the 1990s. And I think, you know, that's actually a valid solution to this issue. And, and it goes back to the point you made about we should have more guns in America and more guns for the, the people that are potential victims so they can shoot back. So I, I'm looking at this whole issue. As, you know, we actually have some people on the right that are presenting a a do-something opportunity, but it's being hit on the left because of, I think, this deep-seated desire to take away the American right to to bear arms. So, if I could, Dean, what's your perspective on, I guess, not only uh, this this bill that Thomas Massey has presented, um, but also with regards to, um, you know, Yes, arming more teachers, arming a citizenry so they can defend themselves. Well, I, I I love the Massey bill. I saw it on Twitter the other day, and I had not heard of it before. And I I uh, I read it, and I said, of course, that makes perfect sense. Let the teachers carry guns. I mean, under the existing rules to make sure that crazy people and and criminals uh, aren't getting these licenses, but. Um, Uh, I think it makes perfect sense. It's obviously very uphill because, you know, uh, gun-free schools, I mean, that label is very hard to fight, just like when you're dealing with semi-automatic, you're you're having to educate. And then as we're talking, I'm realizing ultimately this is an educational challenge. People have to learn. One of the ways they could learn, by the way, is if they actually handled guns and shot guns and and learned not to fear guns quite so much, you know, so some kind of gun safety training uh, everybody ought to have access to, and and that might help a bit. And But uh, but this legislation is great, and uh, I'm sorry, what was the other one that you mentioned? Uh, the, uh, the For the, the bill, so basically the bill is twofold. Um, it would, number one, uh, be no, no, named- no, not, not what the bill does, but, but you mentioned two things. You said the gun, the, the Massey bill and... Oh, and then um, I guess, and you, you did touch on, on the beginning of your, your response there, is um, do you think, I guess, a reasonable solution um, to, you know, the, the quote-unquote do-something action is to have a more armed, a more educated populace? Oh, yeah. That can, okay. Okay, so in a sense, I've already answered yeah. it, but I, I got confused. Sorry. No, it's okay. Um, yeah, so um, more education... And and getting the basically more people have to be um, allowed to be carrying in public places, including places like schools, because that makes it harder for the crazy people and the criminals to get away with it. 
And the criminals are going to calculate and think, well, it's too risky. The crazy people, you're never going to be able to stop entirely. You just, you're not going to be able to. But you can at least try to shoot back, as we've said, uh, when they do. And, um, but, oh, I know what I wanted to say additionally. Ultimately, we also need to view this through the lens of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. The Second Amendment really is an important thing. And, and, and not just the Second Amendment, all our rights under the Constitution, the, the, the ones it recognizes, um, you know, we don't get our rights from it, but it recognizes certain important rights, including the right to defend ourselves. Maybe that's, maybe that's part of the argument is we have to always focus on people have a right to defend themselves against these crazy people so that we focus less on the gun and more on, um, more on the you know, shooter. The, the, yeah, more on the shooter and also more on his victim. You know, the mm-hmm. victim ought to have a gun too. And the fact is the Second Amendment is there so you can defend yourself and so you can defend your liberty. Amen. And we should talk about both of those things. Agreed. And then one thing I think uh, going forward would be a really great tool um, for, for those on the, the right in terms of trying to help educate, but also for those on the left to they themselves become educated with regards to guns. Um, Stephen Katowski, who's a, uh, a phenomenal um, gun advocate on, uh, on if you go to the Free Beacon, um, he's a great staff writer, but he is a, I would say, one of the top uh, people I would reach out to for issues regarding. Can you, can you repeat the name? Yep, Stephen uh, Gutowski. Um, and you can follow him on Twitter. It's at Stephen Gutowski. And he actually just retweeted um, a, a Google Doc that he has made that is a phenomenal, um, a phenomenal resource for those on the right to help educate those on the left in terms of what um, the issues as it pertains to guns, uh, what the verbiage means um, to give them accurate statistics. And he actually made it a point to make um, this this gun reporting resource as non-political as possible. Um, the goal really is to help explain terminology, to give relevant statistics, um, to give what the current laws are. And then the best part is that he has gone through and he has uh, done footnotes for every single um, fact or piece of information he has laid out so it can be, can be verified, fact-checked, and they have this as a resource to make sure that people are, are both not only in the, the media, but also people who are arguing either in for, uh, in favor of or against gun control advocacy, we can all at least have some accurate information. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a great resource. It's a great yeah. Google Doc. Anyone can access it. Um, so I really think that that's a, a yeah. phenomenal that's, tool. That's, yeah, thank you for that. I will uh, download that. That is a wonderful service to just gather the facts in one place mm-hmm. where the citizen can say, aha, Ah, now here's the truth about this situation. Yep, that, that's a wonderful thing. And I think it's it's um it's really helpful too. And I mean, there was a, a Daily Wire piece that came out after this shooting, um, that was in response to the allegation that was pushed by like the likes of ABC News, um, that basically said that this is the 18th shooting that we've had here in 2018. And it's it's like no, this isn't the 18th school shooting. This is this is. Uh, nothing of the sorts, actually. And they went through, you know, line by line showing exactly, you know, what was being classified as a quote unquote school shooting. And it was, you know, an accidental discharge of a weapon um, from someone like in the parking lot and and somebody who committed suicide in their car on a school parking lot. Like Uh these aren't school shootings. I think that really, that is where those on the right, they, they plant their flag on this, this notion of fake news. And 
I mean, that right there, I think it was a crown jewel example of truly what is being viewed as fake news and how misleading and manipulative that statistic was. And that stat went viral saying it was the 18th school shooting. I saw it, too. And at first, I didn't even think to question it. And only after a while did I think to myself, wait a minute, we're only in February. How could that be? Mm -hmm. I would have heard about these shootings. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I think, you know, to have because we're I think as conservatives and as libertarians, we want to defend our positions and we kind of get we root ourselves in the um, the philosophical and the ideological approach to why we believe what we believe instead of actually saying, OK, you know what, let's let's arm ourselves with verifiable resources that are irrefutable. They're fact checked. They're based in in statistical evidence. Let's go ahead and use this. And I think, like I said, Stephen Katowski's um, his is nice uh, Google doc that he established as a credible source. That's not it, it truly is nonpartisan. I went through it last night and looked at everything in there. There's nothing of the sort that would lead you to believe that he wrote this with a, a you know pro gun uh, stance. And I think that's really valuable for us when we're trying to engage those in the left to educate them with truly fact based um, statistics. You know, that is that is so true. And I as we're talking, it occurs to me maybe really what what we have to do in this age of social media where the you know, the lie can be way down the road while the truth is still tying its shoelaces Mm. is we have to all become fact checkers. We can't just wait for the professional, you know, self-proclaimed fact checkers who are often liberals Mm to to tell us what's true and of course that we also have the responsibility not to just believe everything we happen to see on twitter or facebook and because like that 18 18 shootings thing at first i thought you know I, di- I didn't think to question it but i should we should all be very skeptical of these claims until they come from an authority we can really trust and but we ourselves should be fact checkers and when we get that information like this Stephen gatowski's paper on gun facts we should spread that far and wide. The internet enables us to do that and educate our fellow citizens. I think that's that's a great that's our hope. I think is that kind of education. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And uh, and D, we are coming up here towards the end. So I just wanted to, uh, I mean, just just give you a platform. Is there anything right now that you're working on that you're really passionate about that you would love to plug to the audience, or is there anything um, you know, that through our conversation that you really just want to make a nice big final point that you want to address? Well, I think uh, um, to quote a a brilliant fellow, um, there are simple solutions, just no easy ones. (laughs) I wonder who that is. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder who that is. Actually, I stole that from Ronald Reagan, who I think stole it from some other person in the past. But it's it's true. There are simple solutions. You just it's just so hard to get them done, and you got to persuade people. But in terms of final note, um. There's so many things that we can do to make uh, America freer and the world better and safer and more peaceful. Everybody has the responsibility of trying to help to do that. And, you know, what you're doing with your podcast is a perfect example of that. I assume, you know, you're doing this as a labor of love mm-hmm. and and for the cause. And that is exactly what we have to have. So everybody, you know, do that. And follow at Dean Clancy on Twitter and and um, and see what I have to say. And I'll 
I'll try not to pass along any fake news. <laughs> Shame, shameful plug there. I love it. Well, uh, Dean, I really, I appreciate you coming on today. I know it's a, it's a Saturday. There are probably a million other things you'd be looking to do instead of spending it on a, uh, a libertarian podcast. But I, I do really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to speak with me as well as my audience and to, uh, to really bring your expertise to the table. And, uh, you know, hopefully, the, like I said before, the goal of this show is to educate, enlighten, and inform. And, uh, man, I, I feel like we really we had a great conversation today that really accomplished that going yeah. forward. So, um, so uh, as always, yeah, absolutely. And as always, folks, you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook at B Nichols Liberty. And uh, as regards to the uh, the Patreon, uh, feel free to uh, subscribe and make a monthly contribution if you can at B Nichols Liberty to help us keep producing this content. Um, these great interviews. It's always wonderful to have uh, the types of guests we have. Um, and as always, please feel free to uh, to share today's podcast um, to either family, friends, to help us get the message out there and always uh, rate us on iTunes. But Dean, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on today. Thank you so much and uh, enjoy sunny uh, Florida here on this beautiful Saturday. Oh, thank you, Brian. And, and keep up the good work. Thank you, sir. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much. Until next week, we'll talk to you then. Have you checked out the new Brian Nichols Show collection over at Proud Libertarian? Head to briannicholsshow.com forward slash shop and you can grab some amazing Liberty swag that will definitely help pique some interest from our good ideas don't require forced snapbacks, Alexa overthrow the government t-shirts, question everything mugs, and of course our ever popular don't hurt people, don't take people's stuff bumper sticker. The Brian Nichols Show shop over at Proud Libertarian has all the Liberty swag you need. And hey, if you're looking for more awesome Liberty Apparel, check out the rest of the amazing Proud Libertarian store while you're over there. And be sure to use code TBNS at checkout to get 10% off your entire order. That's right, 10% off your entire order from Proud Libertarian, including everything over at the Brian Nichols Show shop. And all you have to use is code TBNS at checkout. One more time, head to BrianNicholsShow.com forward slash shop and check out the brand new Brian Nichols Show store over at Proud Libertarian and use code TBNS at checkout for 10% off your entire order. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com. Who likes going to the grocery store? You have to pick up the car, head to the store, shop amongst the covid masses, stand in line for hours at checkout, then drive all the way back home only to have to lug your groceries into the house. Well, what if you were able to get all your groceries delivered right to your door with savings up to 50% off of the big guys? Brian, your Thrive Market order has arrived. Thrive Market is one of the top grocery store alternatives on the market featuring hundreds of products for specific diets and lifestyles. So, you eating paleo or Whole30 or you live in that keto life? Perhaps you have celiacs like yours truly and you want some gluten-free options that actually taste good. Side note, Thrive literally has one of the best gluten-free pizza crusts I've ever had. Literally have it every single week. And here's what's even better. Not only do all orders over $49 get free shipping, but members of the Brian Nichols Show audience get 20% off their first order. Plus, get one month of their Thrive membership for free. So head over to the show notes and click the link for your exclusive Thrive Market offer and start skipping the grocery store today. Audio production for The Brian Nichols Show is brought to you by DB Podcast Audio. Learn more by emailing inquiries to william at dbpodaudio.com.